Hello and welcome to A New Legacy, where we are speaking to community leaders and organizers about building a new vision of justice. We are Jess and Annie Nickel, and today we will be speaking to Lenore Anderson, who has been tremendously supportive in our advocacy journey, both as a mentor and a model of the kind of deep thinking and deep feeling activism we both hope to embody. You know, a lot of us are aware of the injustices that are endemic to mass incarceration, but this conversation with Lenore really illuminates how deeply embedded these injustices are within the system and contextualizes how we got to where we are and where we can go from here. Yeah. You know, one of the things Lenore has helped us navigate is how to be advocates in a field where there's a lot of potential to do harm, even when we have good intentions. And we'll talk a bit more about that, particularly the responsibility we have as white women to carry our weight in this movement. So if you're someone who is interested in learning more of the historical context of laws like Three Strikes and how they came to be, or how meeting the needs of survivors can actually reduce prison populations and make our community safer, then this conversation is for you. So before we dive in, I'll share a bit more about Lenore's background. Lenore Anderson is the co-founder and president of Alliance for Safety and Justice, ASJ, one of the largest justice and public safety reform advocacy organizations in the country, and founder of Californians for Safety and Justice, the nation's largest network of crime survivors. She has contributed to numerous highly impactful reform ballot initiatives and has served in various government leadership capacities, including as chief of policy and chief of the Alternative Programs Division at the San Francisco DA's office, director of public safety for the Oakland mayor, and as director of the San Francisco Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. She holds a JD from NYU School of Law and a BA from UC Berkeley. Hey, Lenore. Hi. We have had so many conversations with you already that we wish we had recorded because you are a wellspring of knowledge. And it's been a real privilege to get to hear your perspectives and experience. And you've been a huge resource for us in beginning this whole journey of educating ourselves. And to the degree that people are interested in hearing these conversations that we're educating ourselves with, we want others to get to familiarize themselves with some of the frameworks and knowledge that you have. So Annie, I think you're gonna kick us off with the first question. You know, the first time we ever spoke, Lenore, Jess and I asked you for advice in how we might go about supporting changing public policy around criminal justice. The thing I was so struck by in that conversation was that your initial advice to us was really centered around our trauma and our capacity to support the cause without burning out. And you encouraged us to protect our energy, to take care of ourselves while we were exploring this kind of advocacy And I just remember thinking, like, wow, this is someone who really understands the toll that trauma takes in daily life and what can happen when you don't have the resources or the support to take care of yourself. So I've also heard you talk about, you know, the need for a more trauma-informed policy around safety and justice. And I wonder if you could just speak to why that is so needed in our criminal justice system. It's so great to talk to you both as always. And I remember that conversation. And one of the reasons that trauma and addressing the impacts of trauma comes to my mind so quickly when I think about 
not just what the criminal justice system needs, but what we as reform and change agents need is because in many ways, it's kind of the elephant in the room. We've had 30 plus years of a tough on crime response to violence that has actually worsened the experience for many people when it comes to recovering from trauma. And we tend to, as a society, think, well, when bad things happen, we just need to get tough. We just need to respond with severe punishment and lifetime surveillance and big investments into a criminal justice system that can do that. We found out through our work that what most survivors of crime need in many ways is the opposite of that. Most survivors of crime will tell you that addressing trauma is not only what's needed for their own healing journey, but it's actually what's needed to improve public safety overall. The cycle of violence, the cycle of crime that we talk about a lot in criminal justice could also be called a cycle of trauma. And then that cycle of trauma results in criminal justice system responses that exaggerate trauma, that actually make trauma worse. So there's this sort of huge elephant in the room when it comes to safety, which is what does it look like to alleviate, to acknowledge and alleviate trauma? How would that better set up survivors? How would it better set up communities? How would it better improve public safety overall? Well, what does it look like? When we first started our work, we created Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice in 2013, and we got together a group of survivor leaders, advocates and experts who'd also recovered from violence and crime, but advocates and experts in everything from violence prevention to restorative justice to victims' rights. We sat in a room and we asked the question, what do we want instead of what the criminal justice system is doing? And just about everybody pretty quickly came to this issue of trauma recovery. And it reminded me when I was in the district attorney's office in San Francisco years before, I had been introduced to something called a trauma recovery center. And it stood out to me as this really unique program that I had never seen before, which is comprehensive, long-term support for people who have experienced trauma. And it's support that includes mental health, but isn't just mental health. It's also all the basic ways that people need to get back on their feet from help recovering financially to help figuring out a new way to live if you've lost someone to help figuring out how to support children who have also been exposed to violence and harm. So we've been advocating for community-based, comprehensive, sort of one-stop trauma recovery centers in the communities that experience uh, the most concentrated crime and violence with the least amount of help. We've been advocating for this model across the country, and it's starting to take shape. And it's very exciting to see when we bring this solution to the table, it's a bridge builder. We have law enforcement support the solution survivors of crime, people who've been in the criminal justice system as people who have been convicted, everybody gets and agrees that, hey, if we could actually address folks' trauma on the front end, we could really get to this cycle. 
But to your question, Jess, why this model is so unique, right, is because so much of what happens when people interact with the criminal justice system is triggering. Recovering from trauma can take a lifetime. You have to have support around you and people who understand what sleeplessness looks like understand what small noises can remind you of, understand what it looks like to feel like no one around you has experienced what you just experienced, right? Systems don't respond to people from that knowledge, generally. Systems are trying to process cases and don't super get into the weeds of the details or really wrap folks around with support. And so that trauma recovery center model in many ways is the total opposite of what happens every day in the criminal justice system and, and why it's something that could be really beneficial. Our criminal justice system, it really does prioritize punishment over prevention and support. Can you speak a little bit more to that? What happens when we're prioritizing punishment over prevention and support? The United States, I think, spends about $80 billion a year at this point, $80 billion a year on the criminal justice system from imprisonment to county jails to enormous bureaucracies that run correction systems, probation, parole systems, prosecutor offices. This has been a massive investment. And that investment has not stopped the cycle of crime. And it means that we have less overall money, fewer public dollars available to invest in communities in the ways that would help advance violence prevention and trauma recovery. When you look at the science, it's not overwhelmingly mysterious who's vulnerable in our communities. We know when young people lose someone in their life that that is traumatic and has lifetime impacts, but we don't have trauma-informed services in the schools that could help link children up with the kind of support that's needed. We know that when families are experiencing substantial economics instability or homelessness combined with substance abuse, that those families are at great vulnerability of being impacted by crime and violence, yet we don't invest heavily in housing programs in substance abuse and mental health programs at the community level, family crisis assistance centers, mental health crisis response, all of those building blocks for safety. So when, when we talk about the negative impacts of extreme punishment, it's not just that it doesn't work, which it doesn't to stop recidivism, but it's also that it depletes extremely valuable public dollars that could go towards a more coherent and effective approach to public safety. This seems like such an obvious question, but it still seems worth asking. Why doesn't it stop the cycle of crime? couple of important things to note. First, the majority of crime and violence does not enter the criminal justice system in the first place. So less than half of violent crime is reported. And then of the violent crime that is reported, less than half of that results in a prosecution and a conviction. 
Then for individuals who are convicted and incarcerated, we're placing people into an environment that worsens people's mental health. There's a lot of institutionalization, it's often referred to, that happens when we incarcerate people in these warehouse-style prisons where there's a lot of violence inside, where there's a lot of hyper-control, where people are distanced from relationships or connections that are positive in the community and the family level. It's an environment that many people experience as deteriorating and depleting. And then when people come out of that environment, we limit their ability to get jobs in housing because they have convictions. We say, well, you have a conviction, so you're not eligible for this job. You're not eligible for that housing. You can't get that loan. So then people are, in addition to uh, having been incarcerated, they're now excluded from reintegration. And so we are fundamentally setting people up for failure. So it should come as no surprise that people struggle to overcome that experience and many times get right back into the cycle of crime and right back into incarceration. It feels like the thing to ask right now is around three strikes. And Jess and I have this painful connection to the tough on crime policies of the 90s, which I think it's fair to say was significantly marked by the passage of three strikes after our sister Polly was killed. And can you tell us a bit about why that period is so significant in terms of mass incarceration in California? Mm, Absolutely. So California for many years was the first state to enact the kind of policies that then got replicated all across the country, right? So this was the state that passed the first gang enhancement laws in the country, and those are lengthy sentences for people affiliated with gangs. That got replicated. It was one of the first states to pass transfer of juveniles into adult prisons or into the adult criminal justice system. This gets replicated. And so similarly, three strikes and you're out was a law that had a three strikes and you're out type of policy. California passed this both in the state legislature and at the ballot in 1994, and it swept the nation. Public officials in states all across the country started pointing to California and saying, we need to be tough like California. We need to take people off the streets and we need to make sure people get life sentences if they're engaging in violence. And it was very much a political movement that emerged in the 80s and 90s that drastically changed penal codes that ratcheted up sentencing of all kinds. And it was the way that politicians engaged in it was really this whole idea of this is what it looks like to stand up for victims and this is how we need to get tough on crime. Why was it so popular with this whole tough on crime era? What was happening at that time such that it did sweep the nation? I think essentially what we're talking about is uh, 70s, tremendous social unrest in the United States, 
There was a move from conservatives to put forward a law and order framework to try and win votes. And much of that law and order framework was really based on racialized notions of crime and violence. There was a lot of racialized hysteria, and embedded in that was this notion that we're going to take back our communities and we're going to pass all these tough laws and we're going to be able to win votes in that way. Embedded in that was fundamentally consistent with how the criminal justice system has been operating from the outset. This isn't a system that has sought to actually protect everyone, and it never has sought to protect everyone. And that fed into what was happening politically at that time. As someone who, you know, cares deeply about criminal justice and mass incarceration in this country, my understanding is that California is an important state to pay attention to. Is it fair to say that California tends to kind of pave the way for national policy? Yeah, absolutely. California has been a standout state. It was a standout state in building mass incarceration, and it's been a standout state in reversing course. There's still an immense amount of work that needs to happen for sure, but this has been a state that has probably enacted more change at this point than than any other part of the country. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, these are Californians. They took the national stage to put forward very tough-on-crime law and order ideas, sparking a national movement around conservatism that helped propel their leadership. And so that's where it came from. This is the state that grew the amount of money spent on prisons by 1,500% in a 30-year period. This is the state that built 22 prisons in a 25-year time period, 22 prisons despite all that prison building, still had so much overcrowding that gymnasiums had to be shut down and triple bunking was happening inside the prisons. And all of that was because of this ever ratcheting up of sentencing. Who's impacted by this? This was California communities of color that bore the brunt of these devastating policies. Incarceration for Black Californians is seven times higher than it is for white Californians, twice as high for Latino Californians than white Californians. And it was being replicated across the country with the same impact, for the same purpose and with the same impact. Then came a pretty unprecedented crisis, which was the state didn't have money to be able to build its way out of the problem. And the prisons became so crowded that literally one person was dying per week as a result of medical neglect in California's prisons. They were so overcrowded that there was not enough medical staff to respond to otherwise routine and preventative illnesses that would pop up in a population of that size. The lack of mental health care and the lack of medical care became lawsuits that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court ordered California to reduce its prison system. That's never happened in in the history of this country that the U.S. Supreme Court would say to a state, you got to reduce the overcrowding just to give you a flavor for how bad it was. That was 2011, not that long ago, right? So when the U.S. Supreme Court orders California to reduce its prisons population, that's when we start to see an opening. And that's when we start to really see the decades upon decades of work that had been happening, calling for a new approach to public safety, start to actually get some resonance and get some attention. And then we saw a series of ballot initiatives 
to reduce incarceration in California. It was the first state in the nation to have voters say, we want to reduce incarceration. And now we're starting to see uh, that reversal happen in other states. Can we talk about these propositions? You've actively actually worked on two of them, 47 and 57 in the last decade. There's also Proposition 36, and these were all addressing three strikes, right? Can you explain some of these propositions? You probably know them better than anybody. Well, (laughs) the first ballot initiative in 2012 uh, was a ballot initiative to explicitly reform three strikes and require that the third conviction be of a violent or serious crime to reduce the number of people convicted of very low-level crimes that ended up getting life sentences. That passed overwhelmingly by voters in 2012. One of the stories that people in California were aware of was the uh, person who had stolen a pizza and ended up serving a life sentence. The kind of low-level crimes that were resulting in life sentences was so out of whack with what the public thought was going on that once those stories got into the media, the amount of support for reform became overwhelming because that's not what anyone would have ever thought was actually going on. When Proposition 36 passed, it was great because it was clarity that you can talk to voters about criminal justice reform. Recall a lot of the regressive policies in criminal justice came from voters, right? It was enacted by voters. So common wisdom at the time was that you can't actually go to voters and say, hey, we want to reduce incarceration. Well, three strikes reform in 2012 started to challenge that notion as to whether or not you could actually tell voters, hey, do you want to reduce incarceration? Proposition 47 was even bigger, right? I mean, this was a ballot initiative that took six low-level crimes and changed them from felony crimes to misdemeanor crimes and then required the state of California to annually reduce the amount of money in the prison's budget by what was saved and put it into communities. So this was a mandatory reallocation from prison spending to trauma recovery for survivors of crime, violence prevention, mental health treatment. When we crafted Proposition 47, what we knew experientially was that everyday people were really tired of seeing this much money wasted on prisons while our education system faltered, while people couldn't get mental health help. There was a real-world impact that was happening at a much bigger scale than I think a lot of skeptics or political observers thought. So winning Proposition 47, this very bold reform, has really helped open the floodgates for so much more reform across the country. What was so great about 57, it was basically proposing to the public, do you want people to be warehoused or do you want people to be rehabilitated while people are incarcerated? And voters chose rehabilitation. This idea that all voters want to do is just wash their hands and look the other way, it's just not true. What voters want is for the cycle of crime to stop and for their money to be used effectively. We've still got a long way to go, but those were breakthrough initiatives that have helped change the country. 
So we were just talking about reforms, what happened with 47, 57. And Lenore, you had said that there's a lot more work to do. And I'd be curious to get a bit more of a picture of like, what does that look like? What kind of progress do you think we can make? Sure. Well, despite the groundswell of popular support for criminal justice reform that's growing across the country, and despite substantial policy reforms that have been achieved in multiple states and even at the federal level, the United States still incarcerates per capita more than any nation in the world. And that comes at great cost financially and morally. So what needs to happen is a real rethinking of, one, how we invest in crime prevention in the first place, how we prioritize that. The second is how we address trauma when people experience trauma. And the third is how we respond to crime and violence. How do we hold people accountable and sentence people in a way that stops the cycle of crime? We're really far away from achieving that, but there's a lot of promising examples of what could happen that would look different. First, we need to really invest in community-based crime prevention. That's everything from peacemakers who engage in street outreach to help young people who are vulnerable get out of harm's way, to violence prevention programs in the school, after-school programs, things that help young vulnerable people stay engaged. And then we also need to invest in mental health and substance abuse treatment so that we can, on the front end, make sure those programs are scaled up to really meet the need at the community level. You know, one of the things that I remember kind of standing out, Lenore, this is a little bit of a tangent, but when we first spoke, you were saying that, you know, our voices really mattered. And it took me a while to hear that and to actually understand that that was true. I kind of thought people were just being nice when they said that. And I think I didn't feel the truth of it until you said it, because it honestly never occurred to me that our voices would matter. And I imagine that there are a lot of other crime survivors out there who might feel similarly. Can you... Tell us why our voices matter and what resources exist to support people in joining the conversation and supporting a lot of the causes that we've been talking about. I have two answers. The first is people who have been unsafe deserve the opportunity to weigh in on public policy related to safety. People who have experienced trauma firsthand, who have experienced a lack of safety and violence are not the voices that are always at the table, but absolutely should be. You and Jess and survivors like you know better than anyone what recovery from trauma looks like, what your needs are, and what matters the most in response to traumatic loss. My second answer is when we're looking at where this mass incarceration problem came from, it came from a myth. And the myth that was sold was a myth that what crime victims want and need is more prisons and more incarceration. That myth was on behalf of victims of crime, but not engaging with survivors and victims of crime. So when we think about the continued barriers to reform criminal justice, one of the continued barriers 
is this common understanding in popular culture, in state houses across the country, that, well, we have to be careful with that criminal justice reform because really all of this is about protecting victims and protecting public safety. And that common wisdom is just not accurate. It's not accurate at the neighborhood level. It's not accurate for the vast majority of people who've suffered traumatic loss. In order to get to a more enlightened approach to public safety and a public policy that's not based on rhetoric, that's not based on hyperbole, but is actually truly based on what people who have been unsafe need to get to safety, we have to put your voices and the voices of other people who have been victims of crime at the center. You've said before in conversations with us that you're particularly interested in having conversations around changing the criminal justice system with white women. And I was just wondering if you would speak to that a little bit. When we look at the law and order, tough on crime era in the 80s and 90s, heavy emphasis has been placed rhetorically on this notion that the victims that we seek to protect often through these policies are white victims, white uh, women, uh, and white girls. We can't kind of get away from race when it comes to thinking about how uh, American culture has promoted very racist ideas about who the typical victim is, who the typical person is that's committing a crime. And I feel a great amount of responsibility to break through those myths and to break through those stereotypes and to talk openly and honestly about who in our society really does face vulnerabilities more commonly and to talk openly and honestly about who really experiences the majority of the lack of safety that exists. And as it turns out, when we can be open and honest about it, we are faced with the truth, which is that low-income communities, communities of color in particular, young people of color in particular, are much more likely to face great vulnerabilities than middle-class white women for whom a lot of attention has been paid. And so I think it's very critical that we as white women own that knowledge and act on it, and act on it in a way that says, don't do this in our name. Let's actually invest in true safety for our community members that have not had the opportunity to experience safety in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I can say that that really speaks to me and largely to the reason why we're here and why we're doing this. So thank you for that. That feels like a really important part of this conversation. Something that I would like to know about you, Lenore, is um, I was doing a little bit of research about you before we did our interview with you, and I came across this line that described you as a punk drummer turned prosecutor. (laughs) And there was sort of like a record-scratching sound in my head, (laughs) because that's just not normally a pairing that you see in someone's bio. So will you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be doing this work? Well, so I spent my teen and early adult years in California 
and frankly, I was growing up at the at the height of the era that produced mass incarceration in the home state of mass incarceration. I was a troublemaker when I was a kid, but being white and being middle class, even in the moment of the greatest attention being paid to being tough on crime, never landed me in trouble with the police in any serious way and never landed me in juvenile hall. And I don't know that at that time I understood exactly the benefit that I was receiving and the privileges that uh, white children were experiencing in this time of substantial increases in incarceration for young people of color. But I ended up in law school and my first job coming out of law school, working with young people who are behind bars, who are kids who have been arrested and are being prosecuted for having committed crimes. And I was faced with the truth, which is that they are no different than I was. But for race and class, I made some of the same mistakes and some of the same silly choices that kids often make. And so for me, advocating for criminal justice reform is fundamentally about advocating for racial justice and racial equality. And I think that that is one of the main reasons I uh, started doing the work. I ended up working on juvenile justice reform for a number of years and kept kind of coming into this reality that so many of the people that we were organizing were not just people who experienced over-incarceration, but were also people who lost loved ones to harm, had experienced traumatic violence, and had received no help. And so I went into local government from being an advocate after law school. I put on a very different hat, and I went inside local government. I worked as the public safety director in my home city of Oakland, and then in the mayor's office of criminal justice and then the prosecutor's office in San Francisco. And I'm so grateful for that time that I spent inside government and inside the criminal justice system because it really solidified my commitment to not just talk about or focus on how we need to reduce incarceration, but to have as the exact same goal, a goal of advancing a new approach to public safety. The number of survivors that I encountered in my time in the prosecutor's office for whom there was no conviction, there was no investigation, there was no trauma recovery help. Survivors experiencing that were oftentimes from communities of color, from communities for whom there was also over-arrest and over-incarceration. And the way that we built the work through Alliance for Safety and Justice is a reflection of having seen the same issue from both sides. Within all of that, was there a specific turning point moment or aha? What makes a person devote their life to changing the system for the better? And I'm curious for you personally, if you had a moment or if it was kind of like a series of moments or what had you devote your professional attention to this? Well, there have been so many humbling moments where I got a deeper sense of just how deeply harmful the criminal justice system has been in worsening racial inequality in the United States and basically contributing to racial trauma and racial oppression. We brought a group of parents all of whom, parents of color who had children who were incarcerated in the California Youth Authority. 
And California's Youth Authority used to be the largest youth prison system in the country with thousands upon thousands of kids incarcerated, you know, experiencing 23 hours a day of solitary confinement, being set up by guards for fights. It was a horrific juvenile prison system. So we brought a group of five parents to sit down with a leader in the prison guards union at the time to ask that leader to take a different position, to stop opposing reforms to the juvenile prison system that would treat uh, these children with more dignity. And one of the parents said to the leader that we were speaking to, do you have children? And he said, yeah, I have four. And the parent that we were with said, which one of them, if they got in trouble with the law, which one of them would you allow to go into the California Youth Authority? And the deputy guards union representative stopped. And he said, not a single one. I would fight like hell to keep my children from ever having to go into this system. And when he said that, I thought to myself, what if these were all your children? What would you do if you really thought that every single person who was in the system was your family member, was your son, was your daughter? How would you then advocate for change? How committed would you be to build a new justice system? Moments like that, I feel like I had to just take that on as my own mission then, it, it certainly wasn't his. Holding out hope that we can actually care for people who are in the justice system in the same way we would our own family members and demand better is part of what motivates me. I was just thinking, Lenore, about the people that you work with who are accomplishing these incredible things and that you also must hear a lot of really heartbreaking stories of people who have been failed by the system and trauma that they've endured. And so I'm asking partly for myself and also for other aspiring activists out there, how do you not get taken out by carrying those stories with you? How do you stay resourced enough to keep doing this work? Yeah, I love that question. There's an increasing amount of attention that's being paid to what's sometimes referred to as vicarious trauma. We've done a lot of work in our organization to try and figure out how to be what we call trauma-informed and how to really care for each other inside the organization. We look for ways to slow down and evaluate how are we affecting people? Are we carrying too much of the experiences with us? Do, do folks need time off? So as an organization, we really look for ways to make sure we're hearing and seeing the toll and the impact of the work on people so we can create the kind of space that people need to be healthy. Pretty much my whole career, most everything has been experiential and a lot of learning while doing and a lot of making mistakes. For me, the thing that I've discovered that I need to do to stay healthy is I just need to move my body. I need to exercise as much as I can and turn off the phone and turn off social media and put a limit on how much I take in. I really had to figure out what are the healthy ways to be sustainable in this work. You got to come up with that on your own. Our broader culture is certainly not always very good at promoting it. Wonderful. I love that. Lenore, you're in the midst of writing a book, which I believe is basically being written for me and Annie. It's like that is 
the book that I want to read. It's the book I've wanted to read the last six months. So I want to offer a plug for that book. You're going to go into a lot more detail about all of this. And is there anything you'd like to say about that book? I am excited to read it too, because then it means I will be done. (laughs) Once I'm reading it, it has been written. I appreciate you bringing it up, and I'm really excited about this project. I've never written a book before, but the work that we've been doing through Californians for Safety and Justice and Alliance for Safety and Justice is a story that is ready to be told, and it's a story about shifting the focal point of our attention from this sort of one-size-fits-all punishment approach to looking at how do we actually alleviate trauma and put trauma recovery at the center of our approach to public safety. So my hope is that it's an it's a contribution that is valuable in this time of great opportunity for change. And I really can't wait to lift up the leaders and the people that I'm talking to, such as you two, in the process of writing the book. It's just so wonderful to have you in our lives as a resource, as a guide. I mean, I don't know what we would be doing right now if we didn't have you supporting us in our process. And I know you have such a a wide reach of influence and allies. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Truly, it's so wonderful to talk to you. Well, it's a total honor. And I'm so, so grateful that the two of you are in my life and a part of our organization and a part of what we're building. And I have no doubt that the impact that you're going to have is going to be transformative. And to be able to be a part of that is just extremely meaningful. And I I just have the deepest appreciation for you both. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of A New Legacy. If you'd like to support Lenore's work, please visit allianceforsafetyandjustice.org, where you can learn more about some incredible campaigns like Survivor Speak and Time Done. You can also visit our website at anewlegacy.com for updates and future episodes.